The events of January 6, 2021 are often portrayed by Democrats and their friends in the media as an insurrection. It's a loaded word meant to imply that protesters were mounting an organized rebellion against the U.S. government. That description might fit the left's narrative of what happened on that day in Washington, D.C., but it's a far stretch from the truth, according to our guest today, Julie Kelly, author of a new book, January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie is also a contributor to American Greatness. It's great to have you here at The Daily Signal. Rob, thanks so much for having me. Let's uh, start from the moment that this happened at the U.S. Capitol. You have described in other interviews and in the book how you were immediately suspicious or skeptical of the media narrative that was forming on that day. What were the red flags in your mind? It, first of all, was so out of character for any other Trump rally. You know, how many rallies has he had, including huge ones that had taken place in November and December late in 2020? Um, None of them had turned violent. I mean, people just weren't behaving that way. So I think that that really raised some red flags. It just looked so out of character. Um, And also just the instant branding of it as an insurrection. That word was planted, seeded very early that day, and then it just kept rolling. So you had lawmakers referring to it as an insurrection while it was going on. Joe Biden gave his speech at like four o'clock that day. He called it an insurrection. George W. Bush called it an insurrection. Like, where did this term come from? So to me, it just sounded like collusion. Like it was like a fusion GPS type orchestrated campaign Um PR campaign, but then a little more sinister behind the scenes. Like, who provoked this? How did this all happen? So that's some of the things I detail in my book. I'm glad you brought up the point about the word insurrection. Mm -hmm. Tell us why this was not an insurrection. And then I want to go a little bit deeper and ask about some of the things we see now playing out in our politics today, including in some congressional races where they're trying to use that same term to get some members of Congress thrown off the ballot. That's exactly right. And I think that that should raise red flags in people's head. Um, Was this just an organic uprising incited by Trump and the Democrats just happened to be weaponizing it, not just government agencies, but politically? Or was this orchestrated, mainly orchestrated and executed by Trump's political enemies? Of course, he has a lot lot of them um, to do exactly what they're doing right now. So, yes, they're targeting these people as insurrectionists. But how can you overthrow a government with no weapons, with no orchestrated groups who were doing it? Um, Of course, the only person who had a firearm or used it that day was the officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. Um, You have kind of these ragtag militia groups. They also did not have any weapons. So the idea that this was an insurrection to overthrow the government that day um, just makes no sense. But it's a term that the public could grasp super easily. Politicians could, Joe Biden, you know, everyone in charge. And so that is now, of course, no one's been charged with insurrection, um, but it's still, it doesn't matter. It's just uh, lawfare and it's propaganda. Yeah, it it certainly seems like they are politicizing it to the extent that they can benefit uh, in their own elected offices and pursuing an agenda that that they uh, want to do. Now, the interviews you have done reveal what you just remarked on. This was a rather spontaneous event. It was a protest that started at the other end of of, uh, the National Mall near the White House and proceeded to the U.S. Capitol. 
As you did these interviews and learned more about the day, what are some of the most revealing details that you want to share with our listeners? So first of all, Rob, the idea that Nancy Pelosi and Muriel Bowser kept the Capitol intentionally insecure that day. I've spoken with a D.C. National Guardsman. They were stationed at the armory at 6 a.m. that day. They were waiting there, about 1,200 of them. And they were not activated and deployed until 4 o'clock that day. Now, why? So why did they leave it intentionally unsecure? Why then, right before the session started, did you have two things happening at once? One, the alleged uh, discovery of the pipe bombs, who, by the way, we still don't know who the pipe bomber is. And then two, the first breach of the perimeter, the grounds, which happened when one man, after Ray Epps, famous Ray Epps, whispered in his ear, he knocked down these bike racks and ran up. This happened about 10, 15 minutes before the joint session um, commenced. So you have all these interesting timelines. Now, the people who were at Trump's speech were still there. Trump's speech didn't end until 1.15. By the time they walked to the Capitol, a lot of whoever the instigators were, the provocateurs, the undercover agents, the informants, you know, the rabble rousers, they had already started a lot of the chaos that we saw. So people who were coming from Trump's speech really didn't know what was going on. Um, and as I say repeatedly, Rob, the people who wanted the proceedings that day shut down were not Republicans. They were Democrats. They did not want the airing of all of the evidence of fraud, which would be two hours per state. You had senators working with, Repub with Republican House members to contest those results, ask for the 10-day audit, and have two hours of debate over it. Democrats did not want that. It was the Democrats who wanted the proceedings that day shut down, not Republicans. And of course, they got they got what they wanted. Yeah, thank you for providing that that important historical fact and also that context. Let's go back to that time period. So here we are, and you write about this in the book, four days after this highly contentious election in which there were millions of mail-in ballots and absentee ballots yet to be officially counted, the news media declared Joe Biden the winner. I believe That's it was right. a Saturday right. afternoon when that happened. And immediately afterward, the, the Trump campaign uh, began to raise some concern about some irregularities. Well, they were doing it even before the, that, that right. announcement was made. But then even in the weeks leading up to that, you had a number of members of Congress, House members and senators, who, as you said, wanted to have this 10-day audit. Why were Democrats so intent about plowing through and carrying out this, as you said, on January 6th? Well, because they did not want any of the evidence of voter fraud to be exposed. And that's why the media immediately announced Joe Biden the winner. You're right. It was that Saturday, I think the 7th or 8th of November. Um, then they branded any uh, inquiries about what happened into the election, the big lie, which we still hear to this day. Um, but look, all you have to do is look at that Time Magazine article that was written in February of 2021. They admitted not just as you're saying all the malfeasance with the mail-in ballots and people who were curing ballots when they shouldn't have been, but just this whole orchestrated effort with big tech, uh, national news media, business interests, everyone collaborating to take down Trump. Now, what's interesting is they war-gamed out this whole thing under something called the Transition, in, uh, uh, the Transition Integrity Project. I write about it in my book. They used the word insurrection four times in that plan. 
So they were already planning that this was going to be their excuse for Trump. He was going to call in the military. He, he was going to initiate the insurrection. So they already had so much of this pre-planned. Um, and so that is why that, that's how they really effectively shut down any uh, congressional investigation into voter fraud. And then, of course, after January 6th, it was completely shut down. And of course, during this period of time, the American people, Trump supporters, or even maybe not Trump supporters who were just upset about the, the way things were proceeding, decided to start gathering, as you said, at mm -hmm. these rallies, Stop the Steal rallies. And one of these took place on January 6th. Bring us to that day and some of the things that you heard from people who came to Washington, D.C., never expecting what transpired at the U.S. Capitol. Why, why were they there? So that's a great question. They were there I think most of them really thought something was going to happen in Congress that day, that they were going to pass this 10-day audit that the senators were asking for. Some of them, I think, believed Mike Pence actually would be able to do something um, that, of course, he wasn't going to do and then said at 1 o'clock that day he was not going to do, which is fine. Um, but they also were there. I think some of them sensed nothing was going to happen. This was kind of a way to see Donald Trump, listen to his speech, sort of say thank you, be with like-minded Americans, protest what they believed was uh, a rigged election. Um, and so people say it was a great event. You know, people who were at, and there were hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, there was great spirit, camaraderie. People were singing. They had flags. Um, and then they went to the Capitol. And, of course, it was all over after that. So let me ask you specifically about that. Many media outlets incorrectly reported many of the details that happened on January 6th, including the circumstances of Officer Brian Sicknick's death, with the, which the New York Times and, and others had to, to famously correct their errors. What stands out to you as some of the most egregious falsehoods that the media put forward in the aftermath of that day? So the Officer Sicknick story has to be at the top of that list. Because what happened, Rob, as you know, four Trump supporters died that day. Um, Ashley Babbitt killed by a police officer. Roseanne Boylan probably died because of what police officers were doing that day, and likely two other men, because what was happening is law enforcement official officers were throwing flashbangs into the crowd, dousing people with tear gas, using rubber bullets against protesters. These are people outside. They're not even near the building. They just started attacking these people around 115, 130. So that led to a lot of the confrontations you see um, on cherry-picked video. But what happened was um, uh, the night of January 7th, U.S. Capitol Police announced that Officer Brian Sicknick had been killed in the line of duty, that he had been killed by protesters, basically. The next day, January 8th, the New York Times posts a report, an account based on two anonymous uh, law enforcement officials saying that Brian Sicknick had been bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher by Trump supporters. Now, this story goes viral. Every major news organization picks it up. Democrat politicians pick it up. Even some Republican conservative outlets picked it up. No questioning about whether this was true or not. So this prompted all sorts of outrage, led to a lot of optics like his procession through the Capitol. He was laid in state. His remains were laid in state in the uh, Capitol Rotunda. He was eulogized by Nancy Pelosi and by Chuck Schumer. His remains were taken to Arlington National Cemetery. The whole idea was that Trump supporters were responsible for murdering a police officer. Well, what happens after all that's over? The New York Times quietly retracts their story, 
says, we have no evidence that he was killed by anyone with a fire extinguisher. But it was too late because they had gone for five weeks and had all the optics that they needed. Um, and it even made it into the House Democrats impeachment memo, that New York Times citation, and it's still in there. So the whole one of my big questions is if January, if January 6th was so bad, why do they have to lie about it? That's just one of the big lies that they told. Well, of course, the D.C. coroner comes out in April and says Brian Sicknick died at the age of 42 of natural causes, um, a very untimely, unfortunate death, but had nothing to do with what happened on January 6th. Yeah. Thank you for for helping to clarify and expose. As, as you and I both know, when something is out there for as long as that was, the impression is already made in so many people's minds. And right. so they're not going to see the retraction or the correction. Nope. Let's talk about the other tragic um, death that happened that day, and that's Ashley Babbitt. You mentioned her name. Uh, a lot of controversy surrounding that. Uh, she was unarmed at the time she was killed. What do you want our listeners to know about her death? Um, that it was so unnecessary, um, that they covered up the name of the police officer who shot and killed her. They they covered that up for months, including the news media. Now, Rob, think about that. In any other situation, especially in a race, I mean, you had a black police officer shoot a white woman. Race had nothing to do with it, but that's not how the media works, right? So in any other situation, his name would have been released. You would have, you know, they would have scoured his social media, known where he worked before, you know, talked to his relatives. None of that happened. His name was concealed for months. He was then, um, you know, heralded as a hero she, in the meantime, was completely vilified by the news media as a QAnon supporter that she sort of deserved what happened to her. Five foot two, a veteran, longtime veteran, um, tours of duty overseas, unarmed, and was trying to climb through a window. Now it looks like new video that came out is that she was trying to stop the man who was smashing the window. There's some video that shows her punching him in the face to get him to stop. And there's speculation that she was trying to get through that window because of the violence that was happening around her and trying to escape. Yeah, I, w watching Tucker Carlson's special and and hearing from her mother and husband yeah. is just so sad. Uh, and particularly how they treated her body after she had, had been shot as well. Right, and that's why they want to conceal a lot of this video, Rob, which is the 14,000 hours of surveillance video that they're keeping under wraps. They don't want to see they don't want the public to see how her body was handled by police officers basically dragging her down these stairs, you know, face up, just so disrespectfully. Um, and so just the way she's been treated in the media and millions of Americans who feel the same way, that she deserved what was coming to her and they think it's unfortunate that more people weren't shot that day. Um, and Roseanne Boyland is another woman who died that day. They mishandled her body too. She was dragged through that tunnel after police basically contributed to her death and hidden inside the rotunda near um, Steny Hoyer's office by two Capitol Police officers until paramedics arrived and, mm -hmm. and declared her dead. So there's a lot still to uncover. The January 6th committee has no interest in this, um, but I do think some of the evidence will come out in in these trials. Yes, well, certainly. And and, and our prayers go out to, to not only them, but their, their families who yeah. are still grieving. You've talked about the police and you say, you write in the book that they were responsible for a lot of the uh, the violence that, that took place through some of their actions, which you have already mentioned in the interview. 
As you reported this, what did you discover about the police and the steps that they were taking that led some people to act the way they did? I was shocked. The first, I remember the first man, he's still in in the D.C. jail. He sent me a video that he had taken that showed police throwing flashbangs into the crowd. And I was shocked. Now, this was four months after I had started reporting it. I had never seen anything like this. So you see him saying, look at this. They're throwing flashbangs into the crowd. They're exploding in people's faces. Um, And then they were throwing something called sting balls, which when it hits the ground, deploys these rubber bullets. So you see people bleeding from these rubber bullets. And I thought, well, why were they doing this? These people were basically outside on the grounds. They had flags. They were singing. Then all of a sudden, D.C. and Capitol Police started attacking them. Again, I think that's why there were not National Guardsmen there, because if you had had the thousand or so National Guardsmen, they would say, well, you can't do this to people. Why are you provoking them? So that's why you see the crowd turn. They were very supportive, back the blue, Trump, whatever. And then you see them start screaming at police officers. And that is why. In some instances, they were tackling, they were punching protesters, spraying them directly in the face. Now, these aren't even people trying to get into the building. So this is why I write in my book that the law enforcement officials there, D.C. Metro and Capitol Police, were the provocateurs that day. And that is what I think their marching orders were, is to get the crowd riled up so you would see all of these brawls that we did see. Um, and so another reason why they want to keep the video under seal. Sure. And naturally, if you, if you put yourself, you or I put ourselves in that position and we feel that that is we're being attacked. I mean, I can only imagine the, the natural human reaction to a situation like that. Right. You also uh, talk about the FBI having informants at the Capitol that day. This is one of the areas where I feel like we still are missing a lot of information. What can you tell us today about what we've learned so far? Um, we've learned that we need to learn a lot more. Okay. Right? So we already know that informants were run into two of the militia groups because it's been confirmed in uh, court filings and also the New York Times. Um, we know that the FBI will not answer any questions about, say, uh, Merrick Garland refused to answer Tom Massey's question about who Ray Epps was, said he didn't know, which he probably does not know. Merrick Garland is like Robert Mueller, right? He's not running that department. Lisa Monaco is running it, his deputy, uh, a former Obama top official. Um, But also it was interesting, Jill Sanborn, um, who's a top FBI official, when she was asked by Senate Judiciary, were there any FBI informants or agents who either incited or engaged in violent behavior that day? She twice refused to answer that question. So we need a lot more answers about how many FBI agents not just were involved that day, but months beforehand, including the infiltration in these alleged militia groups. Why were there so many people photographed with the Proud Boys, but only about 20 of them have been arrested? Who were the rest of those men who were with that group during the first breach? We still don't know. Um, And knowing how this FBI operates, looking at the Whitmer kidnapping caper, which was concocted solely by the FBI and executed by the FBI for political purposes. Um, The same FBI uh, field office director who oversaw the Whitmer case was then promoted to the D.C. FBI field office right before January 6th. So there's no coincidences when it comes to the FBI. Um, And so we need to answer. So hopefully when Republicans get the House, 
they are going to confront Christopher Ray with a lot of questions and demand a lot of answers because the American people need to know. This FBI, we know, has been completely weaponized. It's a law enforcement agency. It's the Gestapo, basically, for the Democratic Party. Um, we deserve all the answers about what they did before and during January 6th. And the American people aren't going to get it from the January 6th committee, right. Nancy Pelosi's handpicked group that's uh, allegedly looking into to, to the events of that day. Um, let's fast forward. Uh, you also... Uh, talk about the deplorable conditions in the, in the jail where some, believe it or not, here a year, over a year later, some people are still being held. Who are the political prisoners who are still in jail and what are the types of charges that they're facing? That's such a good question. So shockingly, we have a political prison in Washington, D.C. Right now, there are about three dozen men who are have been detained there. That This D.C. jail opened one year ago this week. But a lot of men were incarcerated in other jails before they got to D.C. So over a year, they've been behind bars. Um, most of them face some sort of attacking, assaulting, or interfering with law enforcement. But there are also nonviolent offenders, including at the D.C. jail, members of the Oath Keepers who are not accused of any violent crime, a couple of others who face no violent charges. But nonetheless, DOJ continues to ask for their continued um, indefinite incarceration because some of them don't even have trial dates yet. And the ones that had them, Rob, have now been pushed into the middle or end of this year based on COVID, based on some chicanery by the DOJ, which keeps adding superseding indictments. They keep adding defendants. So this delays the cases for months. You could have one man in particular who will be in jail for 18 months before his trial even starts at the end of May. No violent charges. He walked in peacefully, did nothing wrong. He's been dubbed a white supremacist. Um, he'll be in jail for 18 months. And you know what's really upsetting about that case is the man who's kept him behind bars is a Trump-appointed uh, D.C. District Court judge, Trevor McFadden. Wow. Yes. So it, it's all the judges. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said earlier, and just to, to repeat, no one has been charged with insurrection. That's correct. Yeah. We just got charges for seditious conspiracy. I guess that's supposed to be um, close enough. But out of 730 defendants, now think about this, 730 people arrested by the FBI for January 6th, three times as many as have been arrested by the FBI for the 2020 riots that lasted months. Um, so, yes, yeah, so these men will be in jail. Their trials are being delayed. Um, and it, it, they are political prisoners. They are being kept there because of their involvement in January 6th. And that's the only reason why. And, and paint a picture for our listeners of what it's like in that. You use the word deplorable in the book. What, what are the conditions like that they're currently facing in that jail? Well, in the D.C. jail, for the first several months, they were under solitary confinement conditions, again, based on COVID. They were separated from the general population, saying it was for their own protection because most of the people in the D.C. jail are convicted criminals and not there wouldn't be fans of Trump supporters. Um, neither are the guards. And so there have been reports of physical assault, um, some very explicit strip searches that uh, actually required one man to be transferred out of there to another jail, racial slurs. The only newspaper that's distributed there is the Nation of Islam newspaper. They are um, withholding uh, discovery evidence that's sent to the jail, so they can't even see the, their evidence against them. If they're not vaccinated, they can't meet in person with their defense attorney, which, of course, constitutional violation. 
Um, and so, but I think it's really the solitary confinement conditions. They're back to 22 hours a day in their cell. Again, the premise is COVID, um, but they're really just being tortured. Um, and again, not convicted of any crime. No reason for them. Most of them have no criminal record. Some of them are veterans. Um, and so there's no reason for them to not be released back home awaiting trials that the DOJ and judges keep delaying. They pose no threat to the community. They're not a flight risk. Um, and so they're just keeping them there to torture them. Thank you for helping to expose and 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 reveal to not only our listeners but to the world about what those conditions are. Because if it weren't for you and a few others, I don't think we would we would truly know. And you've spent so much of the past year dedicating your life to getting the truth about January sixth to a bigger audience and making sure that where others in the media or the Democrats in Congress have have failed or, or ignore mm -hmm. the opportunity to do so, uh, you're stepping in and filling that void. So we are thankful for that. You. As you sit here today, what would you say if you had to pick one or two of the, the biggest issues that you want to get to the bottom of? What would those be? The number one issue would definitely be the government's involvement. So FBI and other agencies, what they did to provoke that day. Um, and also, I would want to get to the bottom of what these prosecutors are doing, what they're showing the grand jury. We already know that they've misled the grand jury on two of the most prevalent misdemeanor charges. Um, so I really want to expose everything that's happening at DOJ with these prosecutions, um, their correspondence with other political actors. But most importantly, I think what happened with the FBI. Um, and I do, before I forget, want to give a shout out to there was no structure in place either, Rob, to help any of these defendants. And so a woman of one of the detainees actually started what's called the Patriot Freedom Project, and it's patriotfreedomproject.com. And she really single-handedly helped raise money. Um, Dinesh D'Souza contributed $100,000 to it, which really got it started um, because no lawyers would step up and help these people. So I do think the narrative is shifting quite a bit, and we are seeing some lawyers and people step up to help them. But there was a huge vacuum there. And you're dedicating a portion of the proceeds yeah. from the sale of your book uh, to that. We'll make sure to link to it in the transcript Thank and you. in the show notes. Thanks. So looking back a, a year later and all of the work that still needs to be done, why are you still dedicated <laughs> to doing this? I mean, I imagine you've come under personal attack uh, from those on the left for, for seeking the truth. What motivates you to keep going and why should the American people still want these answers? That's such a good question because this is wrong. It should not be happening in America. You know, Rabbi, I talked to the wife of a detainee the other night and she's like, I never thought this would be happening in America. It just should not be happening. The Democrats should not be using the weapons of war against American citizens. Um, and, and they are. And they're escalating it. They're doing it with the J6 committee, but they're certainly doing it with this DOJ and FBI. Um, it's just wrong. And if we are going to keep our country protected from the enemies in our own country, which is the left and the Democratic Party, um, then we need to expose what they're doing. And so I think I keep doing it because it's right for the country, um, but also on behalf of all of these people whose lives are seriously being destroyed and really had no one to speak up for them. So that's why. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for Thanks, what you're Matt. doing. Thank you for writing the book again. It's called January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Thank you for visiting with The Daily Signal today. Thanks so much for having me.
I'm going to explain a couple of stories that may have made your head explode. But if you understand the Rosetta Stone of today's world, the Great Reset, you will understand and you will see how close it is coming for you. Last night, I was on the plane and I was coming home from meeting with legislators uh, about the Great Reset and ESG. And like every other person that I have met, they knew very little about it. And if you don't understand this, this is the knockout punch. This is the knockout punch. And I have yet to walk into a room of people who really know what ESG even means. The ESG standards are environmental, social, social justice, and governance. And it will change everything in your life. Now, let me explain the Remington story, and you will understand. I'm going to give you a couple stories that will blow your mind. You will get it. Okay. Remington Arms. They were sued by uh, the Sandy Hook parents. Now, we know the gun is not responsible. It's not responsible for killing. Guns don't kill people. People use guns or they use baseball bats. And any gun company will fight this one all the way to the Supreme Court. Why? Because if the gun company can be held responsible, well, then they're going to probably go out of business. And I'll explain that in a second. Okay? Everybody will say they'll be more responsible. No, they won't. They will go out of business. I'll tell you why. So yesterday, Remington Arms reached a settlement worth $73 million with the families of victims killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Now, when I first heard that, I said, excuse me, what? They reached a settlement? How? Why would Remington do that? Didn't make any sense. Until I got, you know, to a lower altitude as we were landing and I could Google the board of Remington Arms because my initial thought was, who have they put on the board that is a great resetter? Who have they put on the board of Remington Arms? And I found out then there is no Remington Arms. They're out of business. Okay, they, they're defunct. They were broken up into a bunch of little companies and I, my next question was, then who settled, oh my gosh, who settled? The insurance companies settled. Now, what do we know about the insurance companies, the Great Reset, the gun argument? Well, we know that the government and the financial institutions... Uh, in New York, for sure, but it has been happening el el elsewhere, but out in the open in New York, they have been pressuring banks, don't do business with any gun companies. Because that, well, that'll make us have to look into you guys, because maybe you're not trustworthy, because we think there's some things wrong with gun companies. Okay, so they started the financial sector, started to do this before ESG. But they also pressured the insurance companies. This is too big of a risk on you. Stop insuring these people and you will stop gun manufacturing and sales. 
So now $73 million has been settled by the insurance companies. You know anybody who believes in the Second Amendment would have fought that to the Supreme Court and would have won. This can't be reversed now because it's a settlement. You can't bring it to the Supreme Court. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean more litigation for other gun companies. It means that now insurance companies have to look at every gun company and say, are we willing to risk this? Because they're all going to be brought into court and we may have to we may have to settle. We may have to, you know, staff up our attorneys for anyone who's ever been killed by a gun. Uh, First of all, gun companies, your rates for insurance have just gone through the roof. Gun stores, your insurance is going to go through the roof. If they even insure you. And ESG is saying no to insurance. That is what's happening. This is an end run around the Second Amendment. It was settled by insurance companies. Insurance companies are being leaned on by the government and the banks and ESG not to do any business. They've just allowed the rates to go through the roof and an excuse on why they can't insure gun companies or gun stores. Guarantee you that's what that story is about. Another story that broke yesterday. Big oil and the climate crisis, the fight to hold PR firms accountable. So do you remember last year, the House had a hearing where they brought in all of the, in, they brought in all of the oil guys. And they're like, what are you done for global warming? Because you're just setting the whole planet on fire. Remember that? Well, um, uh, what's her name? Rhymes with baloney. Carolyn Maloney. Uh, she is the chair of the Committee on Oversight and Reform. At the end of that, she issued subpoenas to ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP America, Shell, and the American Petroleum Institute, also, strangely, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for documents. And the documents were regarding climate, including marketing, advertising, and public relations material. Now, here's the story in Bloomberg. See if any of this is answered with the Great Reset. Campaigners say this step foreshadows a showdown between lawmakers and PR executives, with the latter expected to be called on as witnesses to the fossil fuel industry's climate disinformation campaign. The industry's climate disinformation campaign. You hear how Bloomberg is already phrasing this? If you're against global warming, you are engaged in a disinformation campaign. I go back to the Department of Homeland Security. What's the biggest threat of terrorism? People who are engaged in disinformation campaigns. All you need to say to anybody who's astute, you're engaged in, your company is engaged in a disinformation campaign. And you're like, no, I, I'm just a PR company. We handle everyone. Well, do you? The reason they've been quoting the article, the reason PR companies have been so invisible for so many years is by design. Their strategic power has come from remaining behind the scenes. And I think that's one reason we have mistakenly see these firms as neutral. 
uh, wow. Okay. So now a PR firm, you better be careful who you take on as a client. Or you will be deemed disinformation. You better be careful, not as an insurance company, to take on uh, gun companies. Because you could be sued. And if you do, I'm not sure the bank is going to give your company a loan because you're entering risky territory by insuring these people. That's probably a bad bet. This is the Great Reset. This is not capitalism. Anyone who says this is capitalism, you need to tell them firmly, no, this in their own words is to destroy and replace capitalism. This is fascism. This is not the free market. This is, these are people who believe they know better and they lean on people. You're going to do it our way or you're going to be out. Let me give you one more story. And I can't find it. That sucks. Oh, uh, here it is. I'm sorry, because I'm looking at the deal. And I'm seeing one that just says avocados. And I'm like, What's, what is that? Okay, avocados. Avocados have now been stopped because somebody in inspections was yelled at by uh, a Mexican Oh, as they were inspecting the, and it was, it was so bad, it went all the way to the White House. This guy was yelled at and treated poorly and unfairly. And so the White House said, hey, you better not treat our, our inspectors and say naughty things to them. We're stopping all avocado imports. That's literally what they say it's caused by. A spat between a Mexican and a U.S. government official. Really? Really? The president of Mexico says, no, that's not it. We can't sell avocados to the United States until we bend our will to Joe Biden on environmental issues. Hmm. That one makes a little more sense than, oh, Dad, he called me a name. This is fascism.